0: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, the CMPU, in association with 898 Authentic Rock and Roll, proudly present the ultimate catalog to
1: Welcome to the ultimate catalog clash. Taking the pasta of great music, adding the meat sauce of friendship, and sprinkling over the parmesan cheese of the internet to create a podcast bolognese. Nope. Still, I mean, the intro, I've not got the intro. Still the not the intro. Hell this off was that? off uh, menu. It's, it's the, the off menu podcast. It's a comedy food podcast. I thought I'd try it. It didn't work. Um, I'm just so, hungry oh, now. Thanks. Like, God, I, I <laughs> could go
0: for some spaghetti. The
1: meat sauce of friendship? My God. <laughs> This is the Ultimate Catalog Clash where myself and my good friend and co-host Corey Morissette take on the discography of one artist per season to find out which record will emerge as the undisputed champion. Well, it'll almost certainly be disputed because there's also a little side bet that Corey and I have in each season. So each episode sees us review the songs on one side of one album, awarding 10 points for music, 10 for lyrics, and 5 for production. At the end of that episode, Corey and I will have a score of 25 to award to the side of the album. And once we finish both sides, we'll have a combined score for that album out of 100. So back to that little side bet, Corey and I also have a competition between the two of us to see... Who gets to pick the artist for the next season? Each of us has secretly recorded which album we think will be ranked the highest overall. And at the end of the season, we'll have a special guest with us who knows both of our picks and can reveal which, or, uh, which artist or band we'll be talking about next season. So this season, of course, is Phil Collins' era Genesis. How's it going tonight, Corey?
0: Uh, it's going great. And just to update the folks, we've covered one, two, three, four, five records so far on the show. And our current leader is Duke. So if that holds true, and say Kevin picked Duke, you'd get to pick. Uh, uh, I'm assuming uh, some uh, British wanker
1: type band like Madness <laughs> or something for season two. I don't know. Oh, I hadn't even thought of Madness. Now Oof. you've planted the seed. Mighty Mighty <laughs> Oaks may grow. <laughs> what what about Adamant? What? Do you, what do you, hey, I, I mean, again, I could talk about Adamant, man. I'm, I'm a fan. Uh, goody Two Shoes and Prince Charming. Yeah. Oh, I bought those things when I was a kid. What <laughs> did we rate Abacap, Corey? I don't remember where Abacap came. I think it didn't land. It's,
0: Second lowest actually. Second lowest, if you okay. go in order, yeah. Uh Duke is sitting in first with a 74 and a half uh percent. Second is a trick of the tail at 73.5. Third would be winded withering at 72. And then fourth is Abacab, 68 and a half. And then fifth, and then there were three at sixty-five and a half. So
1: sixty-five and a half. Man, we panned that one, eh? Yeah, not a fan of that one. Well, sixty-five and a half percent still. It's It's above average, right? It's
0: above 50%. Like, that's a passing grade, barely, but it's a
1: pass. Well, but tonight, we're talking about the album that really moved the needle completely. So Abacab started that move, really. Duke was the last prog rock record, really, that Genesis made. And there's a couple of singles on there. Abacab moves that needle a lot further, but this is the one where they fully sort of step, okay, we're we're now going to try and be... A little bit more radio friendly, whether it was you know sort of conscious or subconscious, whatever it was, but the the needle definitely moves a lot more, more noticeably, I would say, into the the pop camp on this one.
0: That's right. Uh, not a lot of prog on here. You you have a a, a two song suite, uh, kind of the longer track, and the next three albums would have a longer track on it as well. So even. You know, they, they never quite lost their, their full Genesis-ness. Uh, we, you know, we would never got 26 minutes of fucking uh, dinners <laughs> on board or whatever the fuck it was called. <laughs> but uh, we, we, we do have some longer songs in here, and actually we're going to cover uh, the, the two of them tonight that kind of make up, uh, uh, well, it's separated into two tracks, but it's Home by the Sea and second Home by the Sea, which all told is just over 11 minutes together.
1: And we're going to talk about that because it's really difficult to separate those two things out those two songs out because especially you know when they played them live they always played them both so except but, I mean, for we'll once leave the, except for the once but i mean even that i don't <laughs> know if setlist fm's dot. i don't think it's correct i don't know if that's I, right.
0: I think it was a sound check i'm surprised it was on there because it had in brackets a uh, sound check
1: yeah so i don't know if i count that one okay so yeah this was recorded um through spring of 83 and released in october of 83 recorded entirely at the farm in surrey which is their home studio and in Abacab, they'd sort of started building the studio, so they recorded it in the control room and in the recording space, but the songs weren't written in the studio where this was the first time, you know, sort of the... the th- now we go on a three-album run now where every song was the three of them in a room composing together, coming up with the musical ideas, improvising, and then each of them taking away the lyrics and sort of writing the lyrics. So you get this different dynamic where you're all being very collaborative and very creative in the same space... That's going to give you a different, it's going to give you a different set of outcomes, which was why I think that this album sounds the way it does in part. It sounds
0: very relaxed. And they talked about having a much more relaxed atmosphere. Well, first of all, uh, they're coming off a big tour in 82. And then the reunion show with Peter Gabriel, uh, six of the best, uh, which was right after that tour. So they had a little bit of break from that. And then they reconvene at their own studio where they can kind of go at their own pace and they talked about, you know, it took us a few days to kind of get into the swing of things. But uh, but once they did, they found it really kind of relaxing. And it, it kind of shows in this record, too. Even stuff like the longer stuff, like Home by the Sea and Second Home by the Sea, has a much more kind of relaxed feel to it.
1: Well, and this is where, you know, th- there's two different elements of this that come together. One is that they're doing most of this together in the studio. The other thing is that Phil Collins said, and I can't remember which song he was talking about now. I've got it in my notes somewhere, but... He said that also what it gave them the space to do was they could just go and they could go into the studio, you know, if Tony and Mike are off with their families whatever. Phil can go in and just start doing drum loops and lay stuff down and just sort of say, well, there's a framework here. This is what I'm thinking. I've got to go and do this this promo for my new album, my new solo album. You guys come in and figure out what you think works, and then we can come together and and then hash it out. So it's not always all three of them in the room throughout the entire process, but it gives you that creative freedom to be very dynamic in how you want to approach the material, which, like you said, I mean, I think it gives you that real sort of, well, oh, we can just take our time with this and pick the ones that really work and ignore everything else and we're not being going to be rushed with it. There's a great technological thing that happens too here. That, again, I mean, I grew up playing keyboards and I always bought keyboard magazines and I was interested. I couldn't fucking play worth a shit because, you know, I was a kid and I thought I was Tony Banks, I was actually more like Tony Slattery, who's a UK comedian <laughs> who is not a keyboard player. Anyway, but in between Abacab and Genesis, sampling really takes off. And so now you've got keyboards that can literally just play samples, and that changes, and they can be triggered differently. So now, I think you know, we're going to talk about Mama. Um, I think even on um, Home by the Sea, you've got that repetitive did, 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 did keyboard. Well, mm-hmm. that's actually someone playing a cowbell or a or, or synth or a, a drum pad but it's triggering the synth so you've got these weird little things that you can do now with samples and with with midi routing that you couldn't do before which again for a band that's as creative and as experimental as genesis opens up a different set of tools that you can now come to the studio and record with
0: uh, they kind of did something uh, on this one that they hadn't done in a while that everything is credited to the band which sometimes creates conflict and sometimes it alleviates conflict. There's a, a band you're familiar with uh, named Queen. When they decided to credit everything collaboratively from the Miracle on, they, they found it took away a lot of stress because all of yeah. a sudden now Roger's not trying to get the fucking I'm in love with my car song on the Bohemian Rhapsody single. So it becomes one of the biggest selling songs of all time too because it's yeah. on the same damn single, right? So I, I always thought and in some bands, it, it works the opposite way. Like in uh, Van Halen, they originally credited all four until they got to 1984 and Eddie, Eddie especially was like, you know, well, fuck Mike. He's not really contributing anything. Yeah. Uh, David and I do all the work and obviously Alex is his brother. Alex didn't really contribute much either, but they, they didn't single him out. They singled Mike out and they kicked him out of the publishing and all that. So, um, you know, here's a band that credited everything separately and now they're doing everything. I mean, for Tony and Mike, it's a great move because Phil was writing a lot of very popular songs at this point. So if they could hitch their wagons to that star, that's a good move.
1: Well, and, when you look at... So, yeah, everything's written collaboratively. The music, anyways, and the songwriting credit goes to the band writ large, which is great because then the income stream from that goes to all three of them, split three ways, right? But, of course, the lyrics we do know who wrote because those were also credited, and we get four Rutherfords, three Banks, and two Collins on this record. Now, it's always interesting to note that two of the Collins... The two Collins uh, songs are singles, where the Banks and Rutherfords, not all of those are, so... It's that recognition, that savvy from Mike and Tony to say, okay, we don't always love Phil's pop sensibilities, even though I mean, this guy was in, you know, Jazz Fusion Band, Brand X, and he was in, this guy's like a seriously talented drummer, but has also got this weird R&B background where he's, he's got a feel for groove and a feel for this lyrical huckle work. And we'll talk about this lots in one of the songs on this side. He's also got these pop sensibilities that they really don't have yet. And so that recognition that let's let Phil write the hits that will get us on the radio, which will sell albums, which will then let us play the 12-minute songs that we actually want to play live. Mm-hmm.
0: And then one of those singles is the one that actually kicks off uh, this record. It was a big hit in the UK, not so much in the States, but I wouldn't know if I'd call this one a, a Phil's uh, poppier uh, lyrical uh, interludes. We <laughs> were talking about uh, uh, their manager, Tony Smith, initially thought it was about abortion. which I don't know if you want to be releasing a single in 1983 about abortion but it's actually about what a guy with an Oedipal complex who has a favorite hooker
1: yeah and about overlaying that the mother fixation onto a man like yeah mama we're talking about the song mama obviously um, and it's a dark 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 lyric and it gets darker and more worrying and more disturbing the longer this song goes on and we'll talk about this a little bit later when we get send it but i think that the way phil collins delivers this vocal is massively underrated and underappreciated and i think possibly because of there's a hook in this song that's stolen from grandmaster flash that's right right so the hey hey," that bit's taken from don't push me because i'm close to the that's that song that phil collins weirdly was listening to came into the studio started riffing on that making the boys laugh and then they realized actually that might work (laughs) so well
0: inspired by that and also john Lennon's cover of bebop alula uh from his rock and roll covers album in 75 which uh Kind of a weird two songs to take inspiration from, but you you mash them together, and I tell you, you get something pretty unique. What do you say, Kev? Let's get right into it. This is the first cut off of Genesis' self-titled 1983 album, Mama. So apparently, Kev, that's uh, a Lin-LM1 uh, yeah. electronic drum machine fed through a gated reverb and a Mesa Boogie amplifier.
1: Yeah, a Mesa Boogie amplifier turned up, to, I mean, cranked up to the nuts. <laughs> Mike Rutherford said that they turned that thing up so that it distorted so badly because it was so loud, which is crazy again, because to record that, then you've got to set the mics way away, but you still get this really weird sound because that's not what the Lindrum drum sounds like. The Lindrum drum famously, I mean, probably... If you think about Prince, Madonna, you know, everything, everything in the sort of mid-80s, early to mid-80s, had a Lindrum on it. But that's not what that sounds like, because it's Genesis. And Genesis takes the Lindrum and makes it sound nasty and swampy and greasy and horrible, you know? <laughs> Okay, so we've talked a couple of times, I think, throughout this season about songs that don't sound like Genesis. And you can see why they did lose a lot of the sort of the the proggy boys, you know, on Abacab. And then get into this, because this is like, what the fuck is this? And it's one of those weird songs for me that occupies a very unique space in the rock and roll canon. It's kind of like um, Bohemian Rhapsody or Don't Come Around In No More by Tom Petty in that it just doesn't sound like anything else. Nothing sounds like this. It doesn't sound like a rock and roll song. It doesn't really sound like a pop song. It's just this, it occupies this weird space on its own. The only thing that this sounds vaguely like to me is Ultravox, do you know the Ultravox Vienna? Do you know that song, Corey?
0: Uh, Yeah, I've heard that song.
1: Yeah, so that song's got a kind of similar intro, doesn't go in the same place, but this is just one of those songs that to me is, as soon as you hear this, it's like, oh yeah, that's Genesis. It's Mama, like, it doesn't, the only Genesis could have done this song and it's just, it's just Mama.
0: (laughs) Well, and it's funny because we're going to get to a song on this side uh, called Home by the Sea, which is about a haunted house. And this to me sounds a lot more atmospheric and scarier than that song, which is about ghosts in a haunted house. (laughs) But you listen to this, it sounds like something from a horror movie.
1: Mm -hmm. Not a song about Phil wanting to fuck his mom. (laughs) Not his mom, a prostitute. Come on, be fair. (laughs) A prostitute maybe who looks like his mom, which is a whole different set of issues, but... You can can hear that. So that sounds like Tony Banks is playing, you know, eighth notes or sixteenth notes, even on the keyboard. Where all he's doing is holding that chord down, and it's the cowbell or the pad, the synth pad that's triggering the keyboard to play the note. which is a weird way because while you watch him play it live, and probably when he played it live, they actually just kind of um, they probably sampled it to just do a a repeat because you can do a repeat note. But it's Mm -hmm. again, it's that thing of. Studio craft, and, like when you play live and you jam, like a blues band's never going to discover that because you plug your instruments in, and you play. Genesis like tech, they like tools, they like the studio. And when you've got a good studio band who are not afraid to explore the space and what you can do with the tools, this is what you get out of it, right? And it's simple because you could play it. Tony Banks could play that, mm-hmm. no problem, but you don't have to. And it's very metronomic and it gives it this really sort of, I don't know, it's so sinister the opening to this song here like it's I so know, brooding it's... and sinister and like oh i don't know if i like this already so
0: i expect this you know, watching psycho or something right and it's funny <laughs> we're gonna have a haunted house song where the second part of it just sounds like an extended jam It has, you know there's nothing atmospheric or or frightening about it the first the home by the sea there there's definitely some but you know this song here definitely belongs in a horror movie and i want to keep going just because i want to get to that first that first vocal because phil collins just uh, oh he nails it <laughs> So there's a little bit on the effect that I'm getting bebopalula vibes, but uh, I, I I actually own John Lennon's uh, rock and roll covers record, but uh, I haven't popped it on yet, so I haven't heard his version of bebopalula yet. Uh, have you heard that song? Do you get that influence in here?
1: I know what it is. It's it's that delay on the on the vocals. that's what I was it, wondering. Well, there's a reverb and a delay on there that gives it like that slight echo, and it gives it that because they did that all the time in the sixties, right? Like it's yeah. that well, it was a Phil Spector really. thing, right? 100%, and Phil yeah. Spector,
0: while it's sounding, he mixed uh, rock and roll for John Lennon.
1: so For sure. So I can kind of see where it comes from. But the other thing about this opening vocal from Phil, I think this is one of those songs. You know some vocalists, are, they're sort of born to sing certain songs. I think this is one of those because there's tons of Genesis songs that other people sing really, really well. Pete Gabriel, you know, for instance, yep. did a pretty good job with some Genesis songs. Um I can't think of his name now. Oh, good Lord. Uh, the stiltskin guy, the, the, the guy who followed Phil. Can't remember his name. Great singer, did a good job with uh, Genesis songs. Ray Wilson? Yeah, Ray, Ray Wilson even, who's a great vocalist. No one sings this song like Phil Collins. The sort of the, there's this really seedy, malevolent undertone right from the get-go. And I'm going to talk about this later, but where he goes with this song vocally and how it ties into the lyric and the story that he's telling. But this is just a, a tour de force vocal from Phil Collins in this song all the way through.
0: You get a little bit of everything and, and I want to keep it going here because uh, the second verse has some great stuff I want to talk about and then we get into the classic Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five moments. So My God! Now, first of all, because it's getting so hard, he's talking about his boner, right? Mm, that's not my interpretation. Oh, but we'll go with it. I, I thought it was pretty literal. So, say you'll help me, Mama, because it's getting
1: so hard in my pants. It's well, it, I think it's. I think it's okay. Well, let's let's set the stage a little bit for what I think this. Well, we know what the song is literally about because Phil Collins told us, but I think there's a subtext with this. Is this is a? You can almost treat this as a diary of a a very psychologically unwell person. And this is the setting the stage for, I'm not well, someone needs to help me. It's getting so hard to kind of keep my shit together. I need someone to kind of bring me back. And your mom, you're my mother figure, even though you're not mom, because probably he's chopped his mom up and eaten parts of her in the, you know, in the basement. But this, this thing he's fixating on, I think this is a real genuine cry for help. It's, it's getting so hard. Just get your mind out of the gutter, Corey. You can listen to him with there.
0: I do a Van Halen podcast and an Aerosmith <laughs> podcast. I, I live in the gutter, but uh, I actually really like that explanation because you got lines like, in the heat and the steam of the city, it's almost like, you know, his surroundings are, are causing him all distress. Oh, it's got me running and I just can't break. I yeah. love that line because everybody feels like they're just running and running and running and they can't stop, right? And, and I so love too it, that that, that line plays is, right into it.
1: But that line is break. Like, break car, a car, yeah. break, be like a car break., yeah. I can't stop, is what he's saying right.: Yeah, yeah it's very, very clever. <laughs> It's almost like a, this is Phil Collins very much in character and he can sing from character very, very well, but you listen, you teach, and he drags that sh out to be very, again, it's very sleazy. It's, it's uncomfortable, right? Like he's, he's telling mm-hmm. a story from a perspective of not a, again, not an emotionally stable, healthy, pleasant individual, but again, you get the, the guitar coming in and they're panned really hard left. So you get this, you get that big note coming in. So it's that slow build, and everything about this song just keeps building and building and building and building until the end, where everything just goes fucking bananas.
0: And the song really can like, oh, it builds so much. But and, and then we get into the uh, the ha 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 coming up, in that that guttural growl. Yeah, that, oh. and he throws in at the end is just like, my <laughs> god, like. I love when Phil sings from a character because that I imagine is about as far away from Phil Collins as you can get. Uh, oh, but he, 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 very beige. he's very—he's an actor at heart, right? He's, <laughs> he's an actor at heart, so he can play yeah. this character. And oh my goodness. Oh, and that always takes me back to the oh, video because it's just filled with this harsh red light yeah. sweating like he's fucking melting. <laughs> <laughs> and it's
1: just, oh my God, what the hell am I listening to? What am I watching? This is so cool. <laughs> well, and again, it's so distinctive and unique. And I, I go back to, I can only say it so many times on this song, but nothing sounds like this. Yeah. It's, again, it, it's got a sort of a, a Broadway story Feel to it. This, like you said, I mean, this was a big hit, really, and it's one of the biggest songs in Genesis' catalog. It's one of those ones where, because I don't think we talked about it. Did we talk about how many times this was played live? We haven't yet. It was played three hundred and thirty times. Yeah, and it's a mainstay because if you go to a Genesis concert, you want to hear "Mama," you want to see Phil deliver these.
0: (laughs) (laughs) with the big red light, like he always stands right over a pot light, right, with the red filter on it, and it just washes over him, and always,
1: always. Oh my god so such an odd song though to be a big hit right because it's it is it's weird and uncomfortable and a bit upsetting well, and, and not very nice <laughs> the band were
0: shocked when they went to their manager tony smith they said uh, what's the first single and he said mama I'm like really you're you're like he said and full credit to tony he picked the weirdest song but yeah. that's kind of what they were hoping for right and yeah. you know it became a big hit in the uk not so, you know hit top 100 in the us but it was, it was like in the 70s i think but uh, yeah a full credit to tony smith who's managed the band was it right from the get-go like i know he managed them from the phil collins era on was he there in the phil in the peter gabriel years too
1: no it was jonathan king was the first manager and that was the, i think we were talking about this in the in the in the trailer in the intro episode for this season jonathan king was the guy who went to private school with them and jonathan king was a huge sort of music impresario so he was their the first manager but he fell away i think thinking about selling england i think or maybe even before that what I mean the first two or three so yeah this guy comes in and just knows knows where the dolls are this was number four in the uk chart it was the biggest single they ever released which is bananas it, right when you think about it
0: because you know a couple of big albums come after this one. Oh yeah they they, they had some big hit like follow you follow me was a big hit uh, you know there, there there was some good stuff on on abacab and on duke Especially that, yeah. you know, we're hits elsewhere. But yeah, the, the, for this to be their, their top single in the UK says a lot about you, crazy Brits, as far <laughs> as I'm
2: concerned.
1: <laughs> I mean, that's just, again, if you don't like that, why you listen to Genesis? <laughs> that's just pure genesis it's so weird and unexpected and you've got this you know this drum loop that's been going the whole time with and it's the same thing over and over and over and over again which we had in um you know uh, uh man in the corner so we've had drum loops and bad samples coming in earlier in genesis catalog but this is the first time it feels different but now you've got Tony Banks playing this weird, and it's, again, as a keyboard tone, I have no idea what that tone is. Like, I've, I can play, I've, I can find Jump on my chord keyboard player by Van Halen. I can find, take a look at me now, because that's basically just a digital piano. There's all sorts of tones I can find. This one, I have no idea where this sound comes from. It's bizarre. It's, it's crazy.
0: And I tell you, the mix, uh, I, I put it, on, I think, on every song, the mix on this album oh. is perfect. Yeah. Uh, Hugh Padding, uh, who uh, produced this record, uh, he also did Abacab, uh, An Invisible Touch. Um, he also did a lot of Phil Collins stuff, Face Value, Hello, I Must Be Going, No Jacket, But Seriously, and Dancing to the Light. Um, he did Mike and the Mechanics. He did Paul McCartney, uh, Tears for Fears. Tragically hip. He did a Canadian band yeah. uh, in Violet Light in 2002. Uh, won Grammy Awards for Synchronicity uh, and uh, Another Day in Paradise. God, what a great producer. <laughs> hey, and what what, just, what a resume. <laughs> Yeah, pretty, pretty impressive. Still working today. Started in 1978. Um, really kind of the unsung hero, I think, uh, of this record because the
1: mix is phenomenal. Well, we were talking a few weeks ago on a different podcast that you do, Corey, about um, Bruce Fairburn mm-hmm. and a little album by airsmith called Permanent Vacation. And it's like you said, when you get the right producer for the right band, and you know Tony Visconti was, was um, David Bowie's foil, and jeff lynn and rick rubin were tom petty's foil they were the right producers for that sort of era of that band they just bring the best out of the artist because they know when to say dial back on this this is great maybe let's take that one and put that one to one side they just know the band and they get to know how to produce that band right and that's really important
0: well and it's interesting too because you look at a guy like bob rock when he did metallica the black album which a lot of metallica purists say i hate that record but it's by far their most popular record because it reached the masses and they butted heads a lot in the recording of that record, like the band and Bob Rock hating right. each other throughout that whole process. But the end result is this classic record that is their highest selling record by far. Did they work together again? Oh, yeah, they did uh, a Saint Anger uh, after that. Yeah, it was all downhill from there pretty much, but <laughs> he was at Bob Rock, was actually their bass player uh, during the Saint Anger sessions because that's when Jason Newstead left the band. So uh, Bob Rock played bass on the record, and then he did a couple of gigs with them, and and they even kind of offered him the job. And he's like, no, I don't want to be the bass player Metallica. That's oh, when wow. they held auditions, and they got Robert Trujillo. If you watch Some Kind of Monster, uh, the documentary,
1: uh, you would know that. Tip, yeah, I got to watch it. My brother-in-law keeps telling me I got to watch it. I'll watch it.
0: It's <sighs> a terrible record and an amazing documentary. <laughs> okay. <laughs>
1: how do you make a major key sound minor that's a weird fucking thing that Genesis does in this song because that's all major keys and you're like oh but it sounds still a bit weird and greasy and nasty it's just my god this there's nothing about this song that isn't amazing to me and even after and you'd be the same Corey I've listened to this song literally hundreds of times and I'm never not impressed by this song
0: I don't know if Phil's hard, but oh, I am. My God. Motherfucker.
1: I. You Not that literally. Th- you know that. Th- <laughs> yeah, hey, I had to watch what I was saying. About. That? <laughs> every single hair on my body stands on end every time <laughs> that bit comes in.
0: Oh my God. That's so Especially good.
1: Uh, this, uh, music fans, listen, please. If you don't listen to music on the headphones, please listen to music on the headphones now and again because you get a different experience when this kicks in and you hear that gated reverb drum come in with that fucking painful howl vocal that Phil puts over top of it it's just one of the great moments it's like in the s right when the drums kick in it's the same thing it, it's yep. just so well done we get some bass now we get some bass because there's been no so we're what now four minutes into the song and we've got yep. no 4 bass.
0: 425 ish yep. no yep. bass at all until here Yeah. Tony Banks said something interesting about this song. He said the length was the key and I 1000% agree with him because it's that slow build throughout the different layers of the song to get to this point here, four minutes and 40 seconds. But when the bass finally kicks in, right. And Phil's vocal becomes more tortured and more urgent and more passionate. And everybody just kind of ups their game in these different sections of the song. Uh, I've given Tony a lot of shit. Uh, for going on way too long. Uh, this song is six minutes and 51 seconds and
1: earns every fucking second of it. I wonder about one thing with this, Corey. I was going to, I think I was going to bring this up on maybe Home by the Sea, but I wonder about, okay, so they, they have the idea from this, they jam it out and they've got the sort of the rough structure of the song and where the, the sections are and how it moves and blah, blah, blah. And then they give the lyrics to this one to Phil and, you know, Home by the Sea to Tony and gonna uh, just a job is to Mike and blah, blah, blah. When they come back, now I wonder how much the lyric then impacts how they then, you know, record the music and fill it out. Because to me, the lyrics in this are so pivotal to how this song builds. Because this, at this section now, the narrator of this song is really starting to lose it. Like, he's, you can tell that he's, not only is he unwell, he's also now starting to get a bit dangerous and someone who you wouldn't want to meet in a dark alley at night. And so now you get this build and the bass comes in. And it's, it's only going to get worse from here in terms of that sort of tone. So I'm not sure how that works. I don't know if they did sort of say, okay, because you've written this libretto to this opera that we've just written, the music, do we then, do we need to then build this into this bigger thing? Because this lyric now takes it into this darker place.
0: I 100% think that's the case, that maybe they played it straight all the way through originally. And then when they got the lyrics, it's like, oh, there's an opportunity here because now this last verse is it's hot, too hot for me, mama, but I can hardly wait. My eyes, they're burning, mama, and I can feel my yeah. body shake. And he's singing like 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 he's coming off like some sort of drug high, right? And he's going yeah. through withdrawals, like there's just so much pain and anguish in that vocal that yeah, I could see uh, you know, Tony and Mike saying, Hey, you know what? Let's, you know, we'll play it. Just start off a little slow, a little quiet. Then we'll, we'll add an element here. Then we'll add an element here. Yeah. And then right uh, coming into this last verse, everything's fucking firing.
1: I, I, uh, I right. absolutely I
0: mean, 100% agree that that would be the case. Yeah.
1: Well, you play it from here now? Because it's a great Tom fill, which maybe we already, whatever point we started, there's a great Tom fill, but then it gets to that. Don't stop. I'll make you pay. Make you go away. Which is now it's getting even darker. So we play that through a little bit we get to about sort of 5.14, 5.15 in the song and it's just all hell breaks loose. So it's at this point, narratively, I think this guy's gone now. Like there's no way back at this point, either the police are going to get him early or he's going to kill someone or kill himself or blow up a building. Like it's just the descent into madness has gone just to the point where there's no return now.
0: So now we're reprising the original, uh, the first verse of the song, yeah. but with much more pain. Like, and, and this is, like, I love Mama Live. They do it so well live, but they never can quite replicate what they got on the recorded version here, which is just all that, just the performance Phil is putting in. And, you know, as, as much as they try to to replicate that live, you just can't quite get it as well as you get it here.
1: Oh, man, it's so funny because I'd written down exactly the same thing. As on, the, <laughs> on my production notes when we get to the end is... This is one of those songs that, as good it is, is li- as good as it is live. Yeah, man, this recording, Phil, you really believe Phil Collins' vocal in this? Like you kind of forget actually that it's Phil Collins singing. It's just this mad person. It's just channeling all his pain and all his anger, like fury, actually, out into these lyrics that are menacing and horrible and yeah, just just very very unpleasant. It's a really unpleasant lyric.
0: Yep. There's one element of the live version I like better than recorded. I didn't fault the recorded version at
1: all for it, but we'll 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 talk about it when we get there. So Phil Collins does a lot of fills in this song, a lot of drum fills, but they're all There's not a it's all straight, right? But 548 starts putting in a bit of syncopation and then it changes again. It changes the feel of the song where you can feel that sort of that mind becoming unhinged. And again, I don't know if that's intentional. Maybe that's me overlaying that on top of what I'm hearing and what I know of the song. But to me, it's that sort of, it's it's that breakdown. (laughs) It's that sort of mental breakdown and that psychotic break that you can do just with a little drum fill, which I think is very cool.
0: Oh, there's just so much, oh. so much anguish in that vote. Don't go! You want know, her to go?
1: So pained. I mean, it's again, yeah. I mean, if if you're going to inhabit a character and tell a story and sort of, if you're going to teach people how to do it, this is one of the template songs you're going to take and say, "This is how you do it." I was listening to um your um backtracks theme music podcast today, Corey, and you were talking about. Pee Wee's Big Adventure, mm-hmm. and how that movie, the, uh, Paul Rubens and uh, who's the other writer? Uh, Phil, Phil Hartman. Took a book on screenwriting because they didn't know how to do it and sort of followed a very formulaic, to the extent that that's, that film is now used as an example in screenwriting classes about how you do it. Mm-hmm. To me, if you're going to tell people this is how you sing from character in a sort of a rock context, this is how you do it. I mean, Phil Collins, like, this guy's gone now. He's, like I said, he's completely and utterly unhinged at this point in the song. And that's all in the way that Phil Collins is cracking his vocal and he's screaming in his high register. Can you, he, he could not have sung this song on Trick of the Tail.
2: No, He just couldn't have
1: got this vocal because he wasn't confident enough yet. He wasn't... It, this, this wasn't the same Phil Collins, or this isn't the same Phil Collins that he had eight years ago. Now it's a different animal altogether and he's just inhabiting this crazed person doesn't even sound like phil collins and
0: that's the element they miss when they do this song live because it sounds like phil collins singing this song which is not a bad thing but it's not what we're getting here way to an album though. one extra ha, 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 just for good measure too <laughs> uh, i'll tell you what though that's the one element of the song i think they do better live and that's the outro and uh, i'm gonna uh, i'm gonna try and find uh we'll, we'll go to like uh, maybe uh the way we walk the shorts i think mama's on there okay and i i, I just want to play the ending of it because the, the fade out uh, is fine but I, I think they do it better live so oh, if you don't mind yeah, kevin yeah. i just want to play a little bit here of let's of do live. it
1: Tell me I'm wrong. I mean, that's trem- the way you end this song. Tremendous. <laughs> oh Here's the thing, God. though: you very, very rarely hear songs end that way on albums. The big it's rock true. ending, which is so weird, right? Because it works clearly, but they don't. People don't tend to do it on albums. I don't know. But you're right. And I, I mean, that ending way? is that's Sound that's great? the way you end that song. Yeah.
0: <laughs> All right, Kevin. That's Mama. Uh, I can just imagine we were going to give it. I'm going to go first. Uh, do it. motherfucker. Ten, ten, and five no notes like uh, e- even the e- <laughs> e- even the fade out i was cool with and i i prefer the the concert outro but fucking love this song it's one of my all time favorite genesis songs that's all i can say
1: <laughs> yeah i mean it's i'd written down it's one of the and we said this in the in you know when we were talking about it it's one of the defining genesis songs it's one of the songs that makes genesis who and what they are which is weird because it comes really late in their career but nonetheless 10, 10, and 5, of course it's 10, 10, and 5. Like, I always, I've always found that line, can't you feel my heart, really, really sinister. And I'm not really exactly sure why. It's almost like a... Either I need you to be so close that you can literally feel my heart beating, which is quite an intimate thing, or it, don't you know me so well that you you don't know where my heart, sort of, you know, philosophically is... It's just a, it's such a powerful line. And it's got you know this what, band- he, He's almost got
0: like a stalker aspect to it. Where, yes. 100%. Where she doesn't feel the same way about him as he does about her. Like, can't you feel my heart? Like, yeah. I, you should know everything about me because I,
1: I'm obsessed with you. You should be obsessed with me. So here's a question for you then quickly. Is this the best vocal Phil Collins ever recorded? Because I think it's in the, it's got to be in the top three if it's not the best for me.
0: You know what, I'm thinking Genesis catalog, absolutely. I'm trying to go through his, his solo catalog to see if there's one I think is better. Top three, I, I think, there's no doubt about it. It's, that's absolute. Uh, it very well could be. And, and not only just one of Phil Collins' best vocal performance, one of the best vocal performances I can think of off yeah. the top of my head. Holy fuck. this is such a great, great
1: performance. And like you said about the length too, and Tony Banks saying, this song is exactly as long as it needs to be, because if you didn't have that build... Like I said, to me, that descent into madness that you get at the end of the song, it would be hurried. It's like, you know, when people try and cram too much into 90 minutes in a movie that should be 120 minutes, The Dark Tower, when they did Stephen King's The Dark Tower. Right? That right. movie needs to be two and a half hours. You can't do that in 90 minutes, and you lose that impact because you don't have enough time for the wound to fester and get puss in it and separate, and you don't have that kind of... It, evil doesn't have enough time to grow, where seven minutes in the song just manages all that perfectly. So we're
0: both 10, 10, and five on Mama. 10, 10, and five. Where do you go from there? Like, you've already blown your load uh, on the first track of the song, but instead, we get a bouncy little fun tune that uh, actually performed better on the US charts uh, than Mama did. Uh, This is a track called That's All.
2: Just as I it was
0: what a great counter programming. You're coming off, Mama, <laughs> and you get this happy little bouncy piano tune uh, with with this great little vocal. like it it couldn't have been sequenced any better. Like how do you come off where you went with Mama?
1: This is the perfect song. I mean, Again, so something that I do on my Tom Petty project podcast with my season end co host, John Paulson, is we try to, we always go to and say, okay, is this album sequenced optimally? And quite often we think, well, I'd change this and this was an outtake, so I'd throw this in and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, this is the only song that can come in at track two, dude. Like it really is, right? And yeah, happy, upbeat, and you know, Tony Banks called it their Beatles y, you know, bouncy song. But, it, again, it's not a happy song.
0: Even not really, it sounds no.
1: kind of bouncy, it's not a happy lyric. <laughs> <laughs> Live
0: with you just to put me through it all the time. Yeah, it's not really a happy <laughs> lyric. But, uh, yeah, uh, if John Lennon's bebop a was mama, th- this is kind of the Ringo Starr uh, solo track of the record, if you will, right? It's even got a little, little <laughs> Ringo swing. The bounce. Uh, yeah, the bounce to the
1: drums there, I thought was kind of cool. Well, Tony said uh, that it was um, uh, Rocky Raccoon is what it always reminded him of. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which has got that, you know, that sort of vaudeville, you know, kind of swing to it. Um and I love that Tony says that he saw he got he kind of, you know, they were sitting around all three of them and he just started playing the piano riff and Phil joined in just instantly with that kick uh, kick hat, kick hat, kick hat. It's like, okay, hey, well now we've got a groove. And that's that funny thing with musicians where if you can just find that little through line pretty early, the rest of the song tends to, you know, be a little bit easier to sort of Smush into place where if you're fighting straight from the get go, ah, it's going to be hard work. I
2: love you, I to. No to work. Like we'll
1: Phil. Motherfucking Collins, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. I mean, that's just, you know, we, we've talked on different songs about his power. We talked Dodo Lurker about, you know, the, the swing and the great groove that he plays. This is super tasteful, but you come out of this verse chorus section into this C section, not really quite a bridge because he plays it a couple of times, but I was going to talk, I think, about the, the structure of this song. Um, man, he fills all over this section, but it's super tasteful.
2: Paceful is a great word yeah right yeah
1: yep,
0: exactly and, and just a simple little din or just you know nothing too flashy not,
1: nothing too crazy just but he he's rolling on the snare as well like it, it's again it's one of those things we think oh that's really simple and then as a drummer when you sit there and you think oh shit i can't play that Like that's just really hard <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's nice he kind
0: of lets tony be the star of this one a little bit yeah uh you know he he gets a, a keyboard solo here and even with the piano
1: at the beginning uh, You know, it, it kind of feels like a Tony song. Oh, totally. I mean, and the, the only, this is the only knock against the song that I had is in this section where we get the keyboard solo, there is a guitar in there. And when you listen to the song live, when they play it live, you can hear Mike playing or you obviously see him playing this really nice arpeggiated sort of broken chord accompaniment to this section that I just wish was a little bit higher in the mix because it is there. It's just really, really low. Should we listen to it? let's listen to it
0: you know i i heard phil's little accents
1: more than i did the guitar Yeah. (laughs) So you hear the little vocalizations are in there to add a bit of color and a bit of texture. And there is some guitar in there. My comment on this one, Corey, was that if you wind back to, you know, the first few episodes of this season, when we're talking about Trick of the Tailwind and Wuthering, what would pad out that section would be more Tony, Mm -hmm. more keyboard, and you wouldn't have as much space in the song. And I think that's where they, Tony and Mike, caught up with phil's pop sensibilities to say we don't need more there we actually need less less is better there because then the solo sounds better then it's more prominent but also then we can put a little bit of phil again mark's guitar should be a little bit higher but it just gives you that the bit more width in the song i think Point in the Genesis catalog. I don't think we've had a traditional solo from Mike Rutherford. I think this is the first where well, you would call this a solo. He's had moments in songs and riffs and motifs and little kind of interstitial noodly bits that you know Slash was really good at that, and Izzy Stradlin and Guns and Roses were really good at sort of putting little bits into songs. And Mike Rutherford does that a lot in this. I don't think he's soloed. This is the first solo that I can remember.
0: Yeah, uh, I would agree with you with that, and in typical Genesis fashion, Tony said, let's put it at the end, fade <laughs> out over half of it, and I want my keyboards louder than your guitar. Oh.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Look, when we have Tony Banks on the podcast, Corey, it's going to be very awkward. I'm going to punch him in the dick,
0: That's because I... T- <laughs> when, when Tony Banks is on, uh, he's on. And when he's part of the song and part of the band, it's fantastic. When he's looking straight down at his keyboards for the whole fucking concert and just
1: overpowering everything, that's when I have a problem with Tony Banks. But I think this is... So I think, I guess then, you love this album. Well, not mainly, but one of the reasons you love this album is because Tony Banks does get out of the way most of the time in this album. It's not the Tony Banks show. It's the Mm -hmm. Well, and the reason that they called it Genesis... Was because they, well, first of all, they couldn't come up with a a better title, but they thought, well, if we call it Genesis, it really sort of emphasizes that this is a band effort. It's not, we're not individuals, we're writing all these songs together, and it's, so it's Genesis in its purest form, which I think is kind of cool. Me too. When Tony's part of the collective, it's magic.
0: When Tony overpowers the proceedings, it's pretentious bullshit. (laughs) And I want to punch him in the dick. But I don't want (laughs) to punch him in the dick on this album so much because I love it so fucking much. That was, that's all. Played 261 times in concert. Mr. Kevin Brown,
1: what are your scores? Okay, um, I don't know if this will surprise you. Maybe it won't, but so I'm going seven music. Okay, so it's a deliberately small snare sound from Phil that works really well with the song. It's very simple but effective. It's just a very piano-led or sort of, you know, electronic piano-led part. And I'm not sure if you ever played this on, like, an acoustic piano and what that would sound like. And I'm, yeah, I'm rating it a seven because in the of so the Genesis canon, I want fireworks and I want musical interludes and you know left turns and everything else. So in that sense, it's really just a Genesis pop song. So there's nothing wrong with it, but I'm rating it a seven because it fits the song perfectly. And I think Phil found the exact right lyric for it. Lyrics eight, I think it's a really strong lyric from from Phil. It's a very cool hook. It's always the same. It's just a shame. That's all. And it's that thing where you know your parents would say to you. I'm not mad at you, I'm just disappointed. <laughs> so it's that kind of, it's resignation rather than anger in the lyric. And then production 4.5, and I'm docking it half a mark only because I'd have loved to have heard Mike's guitar in that solo section a bit more prominently. But it's, you know, it's a very minor quibble, and it's, we said earlier on, it's going to be very hard to find fault with any of the production on this record. So I'm just trying to find something that we can uh, be a little bit contrary about. So 4.5, so seven, eight. And four point five. How about you, Corey?
0: All right. Well, for music, I gave it a nine. I really nice. love the music of this. It's light and bouncy and fun, and and Tony is part of the collective. He's not overpowering the proceedings too much. It's not the Borg. Uh, this is not the Borg. It's not fucking. You know, Tony is he... Banks is the Borg. He's Tony Borg. I want is that he... on a t shirt now. Borg, with Tony Borg three. <laughs> it's Tony Borg. He's part of the collective. No. Uh, I gave it a solid nine. I love the music on this one. Uh, lyrically, I'm exactly with you. I gave it an eight. Uh, if I'm going to dock, it's a great hook. It's a great lyric. Maybe a tad repetitive because we get a lot of the same. Yeah. That's the only reason why I docked it there. And that's kind of why, uh, for production, I gave it a four, uh, just a half point below you because again, it gets a tad repetitive. And like you, I wanted to hear more of the guitar on the solo section at the end. Uh, a little less keyboard, just maybe mix that a little bit better. Minor quibbles, I really mm-hmm. love that's all. Nine, eight, and four for me. Did you know what the B-side was to this on the U.S. single?
1: Oh, my God. Oh. Because it's uh, kind of weird. Oh, wasn't it like second home by the sea or something? It was. Second yeah.
0: home by the sea was the U.S. B-side. It's like, <laughs> which is so weird. <laughs> I, I don't get that at all. In the U.K., it was taking it all too hard. Which makes sense. That's <laughs> yeah. a great B-side for this song, I think. But yeah,
1: second Home by the Sea just oh, it didn't make any sense to me. Well, I love it because that's almost like a fuck you to the American market. Like, <laughs> we know you don't like <laughs> prog. So here have this fucker. <laughs> yeah, here's half of it. <laughs> God. And the, the half that you're definitely not going to love. <laughs> that's
0: right. That's right. Uh, let's get into the first half, shall we? This is uh, a little track called Home by the Sea. Let's get into it. so you want to talk about perfect sequencing again so you're coming out of that's all a bright happy bouncy little fun tune back into atmospheric uh, you know, it sounds right. You got guitar right off the hop. When the fuck is that happened on a Genesis song? <laughs> we heard Mike right at the beginning. And then you know, this little vocal from Phil with the reverb on the home. by the And you're
1: wondering what the hell you're getting into. Really, really cool. Yeah. And it's that check, check, check. It's like, what the f- this is? And it comes, doesn't come back in on the one. It comes in on the three and. And yeah. Home by, and so that home by the sea that Phil sings here. That was basically what Tony took, right? So they and we'll get into this on We Can't Dance, especially when they sat around and jammed. Phil would often just kind of hum or mumble nonsense lines or come up with one line as he's uh, like as, as a melody. And Home by the Sea is what he kept singing over and over and over. And Tony's like, I've got an idea for that. I think I can do something with that. Cause Home by the Sea is, it's got a, there's a comfort thing to that, right? Home by the Sea, it's got, you get a very idyllic English you know, pastoral scene of the, the white cliffs of Dover and a little cottage. And Tony Banks takes that and thinks, well, I'm going to take that and fuck it completely and make it this awful, horrible, again, again, very dark side to this album, really, when you think about it. Lyrically and tonally, it's a very unhappy side of a record. But, again, the intro to this one is one of my favourites in the Genesis catalog by far and i love also sorry i know i'm talking too much Corey. the flange and sort of phase effect on phil's vocal is really cool because it gives it that sort of ethereal quality right from the get-go
0: no it's great and uh i love that you mentioned like the the how tony kind of took the the idea of home by the sea and flipped it on its head yeah to me that's smart writing right when you think home by the sea you think warm you think inviting you don't think uh you know this what this ghost story we're gonna get into right about a burglar who breaks into a place and that that's haunted And he's like yeah. tormented by these ghosts. It's such a cool way to to kind of throw that, you know, right on its ear
1: I thought it was really cool when um, we've got to talk about you know before we get too much further into this song again, as I said earlier on in the episode Home by the sea and second home by the sea They are one piece to me. I never listen to one without the other and so the when the lyrical coder comes in at the end of Second Home by the Sea, and we'll talk about it later, I think that's a brilliant little device that they use to complete the story in a very unexpected way, to my mind. So Home by the Sea, Home by the Sea, Home by the Sea, Home by the Sea. It's like, okay, well, just send it. Well, what is Home by the Sea? Is that a good thing? Is it a holiday home? Could be a holiday home. Could be a beach house. Could be a whole bunch of things. As soon as we get into this first verse, we are disabused of this notion.
2: Chinning up the wall Stealing through the dark of night Climbing through a window Stepping to the floor Checking to the left and the right Picking up the pieces Throwing them away Something doesn't feel quite right
1: Holy shit! I mean, what? Okay, first of all, I don't know if you notice it, Corey. And if you listen to this again, maybe once we're done, go back and listen. When you listen to the a good, like you know, we're, I'm listening over the internet here, it's probably really super clear for you. There's a really cool fuzz in the low end of this section of the song, and I'm not sure if it's like a fuzz that's like a distortion on the bass guitar, or it's something that's added in with the synth. But again, it just gives you that little bit of. It, it gives it a sort of unease it sets a tone exactly that again this is a mood song right it's all about the mood in this and the lyrics important and everything else but this is a, this is a, it's like mama it's like i don't know what's going on here I don't really like this you know i don't feel safe <laughs> well and that's the way
0: you're supposed to feel and they mm-hmm. purposely made the protagonist if you will the main character a, a burglar so they didn't want you to feel sympathy for him yeah. because the, these ghosts are meant to torment them and you don't want to feel sympathy for they were going for this really kind of dark edge to it that's I, I love that that that's the story and that uh, you know creeping up the blind side shitting up the wall the guy's breaking into the house and then all of a sudden he's like help me summon you know get me out of here then out of the dark was suddenly heard welcome to the home by the sea I like how the ghosts are kind of just being smart asses like just fuck you welcome to the home by the sea you're in for it
1: now buddy it was kind of a cool refrain okay so let me pitch something at you then because I read that first, help me someone get me out here through the nearby. I think that's different, because I think that these these spirits, or whatever they are, that inhabit this, this house, I don't necessarily think they're all malevolent. And I think that first, help me someone let me out of here, I think might be one of the spirits just pleading with him to release them. Then, out of the dark, we suddenly hear, welcome to the home by the sea. So, I think there's two factions even. At bay. If it's a horror movie, this is where you would get, like, you know, the spirit world is, is inhabited by malevolent forces and, you know, the dark and light, the, the good and bad, and the, the Christian an- allegory of good and evil. So I think the first line there, help me, someone get me, is not the, not the burglar because I don't think he knows yet. So I think it's actually, I think that line is one of the spirits or some of the spirits saying, help us get me out of here so but if you're pleading with someone you're gonna say help me so there's a there's a hairball theory if you wanted one
0: interesting no i i definitely didn't take it that way i thought it was more of the ghost tormenting him and, and now he's trying to get deeper into the house coming out the woodwork through the open door pushing from above and below like he's oh. now panicked and he's tra- he's running around trying to get out of this place
1: no coming out the woodwork through the open door pushing those are the, I, i've always read that as the spirits coming from coming at him from all angles Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of now I'm starting to overcome. So now we now we sort of come to realization. So maybe I've just overthought this to a degree that is completely unnecessary, even for a podcast, Corey.
0: Well, and it it kind of makes a turn too because Tony kind of alludes to. It almost becomes self referential about the band at one point. Uh, this song in that uh, I wrote it down here. Uh, Genesis, the band, are the ghosts, and the home by the sea is their catalog and he, he references like the idea that we're telling our life story through our songs which is sort of represented by the third verse of the song as we relive our lives and what we tell you uh, Tony said I think it's quite a strong thing it's sort of what you do in a group so there's almost kind of this self referential thing where they're actually talking about being a band too which is really out there
1: <laughs> donkeys are like onions they've got layers <laughs> <laughs> welcome to the again i mean we've talked about it on both tracks so far on this album Phil Collins has now started to really find his voice and become the melodic center point of what Genesis sounds like, which he definitely wasn't before. It was Tony Banks and it was polyrhythms and all these weird things. That's what Genesis was. Genesis at this point really actually has become Phil Collins. It's a vehicle for Phil Collins' voice in a lot of ways, right?
2: Mm Mm-hmm
1: and
0: here we're getting into this very atmospheric part where it's almost like a tone poem because now they're going to they're not going to tell you the story lyrically they're going to tell it to you musically yeah. and and you're going to feel uh, what being in this haunted house must have been like See, this is, when I say Tony's part of the collective, he's not overpowering this section, right? You still got, got some whale sounds in there. You had some guitar on the one side, uh, kind of adding some some creep factor to it. And, and he's just melodically kind of playing along. He's not going off on a big run, big pretentious thing,
1: playing to the mood of the song. It's perfect. It's cool too, the eh? way because you get a sense of, like, because the synths are faded in and they sweep and they kind of sweep, you get this idea of, Spirits sort of, you know, flying around. I think that's just a, a very sort of clever musical choice that you don't need words here because you can do, as you said, you can do it with music. So. <laughs>
2: Images of sorrow, pictures of
1: I mean, talk about again arrangement and production and how you craft a song and arrange a song. Now we get those stabs of dang, 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 that that those come in again. We've got those guitar stabs now and Phil singing images of sorrow, pictures of delight, things that go to make up a life, endless days of summer, longer nights of gloom, waiting for the morning life. Uh, morning, morning light. Sorry, I mean that's take a take a a mood and an atmosphere, and then start start to ramp it up. And we talked about this in Mama, where it's this the descent into madness is emphasised by the music, the sense of loss and understanding that I've got trapped in this place and I can't get out. You're starting to build that not just through the lyrics, but with the additional instrumentation that's been added into the song. Does
0: that makes sense, and it does, It actually. Uh... I'm coming around your way thinking that the, uh, the choruses are more of the ghosts because here we have in this chorus, help us, someone let us out of here because living here so long undisturbed dreaming of the time we were free yeah. definitely sounds like it's coming from the ghost perspective,
1: right? And again, we'll revisit this in second home by the sea because when they sing essentially the same pattern, that's when it flips and that's the third act in the, in the play, which is again, super cool, but we'll, we will get there.
0: And I love the sit down because it's a ghost like yelling at this guy, sit down. Yeah, as we relive our lives in what we tell you, like it's very commanding. And
1: yeah, it's kind of like a a prison guard telling the prisoner to. It's that thing of where one one character has control and the other has no control and no power. So you've got this power imbalance that you know is emphasised. And again, by that crazy little drumbeat and Mike starting to stab those guitars, like it really sort of builds that that tension. Sit down,
2: you won't get away
1: so we haven't talked about in this section that ascending line that Tony plays on the on the keyboard, um, but this in, it, in this iteration we get this extra because you won't get away. No, with us you will stay for the rest of your days. Sit down, and that's what you were talking about in that last little stanza is. This feeling of increasing and impending helplessness that, oh shit. You know, this burglar's broken into this house and he's encountered this weird thing and he's maybe getting a bit frantic and starting to he's trying to get out and he's he's getting a bit frustrated and everything else. But at this point now he's realised that actually I'm caught here now and my future now doesn't look very good at all. <laughs>
0: No, uh, no, with us, you will stay for the rest of your days. That's the kicker at the end. Like, you're not going anywhere. And that's why yeah. they had to make this guy a burglar because you don't want somebody showing up at a vacation home and, you know, getting trapped <laughs> here with these uh, spirits for the rest of his days. So I, I totally get what they were coming from in that section there.
1: when well, I want to throw back to your backtracks uh, theme music episode that you just did, Cora, the one that I just listened to. Sorry, anyways. Because I'd never thought of that before because you talked about Pee Wee Herman is not a very likable character. In a lot of ways, he's juvenile and stupid and petulant and, you know, vengeful. So to make him the hero of the piece, you need an anti hero who is worse and more dis- dislike or less likable. And so then you have to create Francis. Yep. And so this works because the burglar should be the villain and is the villain in some ways. But you end up sort of thinking, oh, I wouldn't want that for myself. So I don't necessarily want this for this person. So I, I like that. That's, yeah, that's, a, that's a really cool
0: observation. I like that. That, that was the one thing I, that really struck me rewatching Pee-wee's Big Adventure was Pee-wee's an asshole in the first act of that mm. movie. Like, he's a total dick to Francis. He's a total dick to Dottie. And then after his bike is stolen, he gets all of his friends together in his basement, <laughs> and he like holds them hostage while he's showing them, yeah. you know, Exhibit A, a picture of me with my bike, and then Exhibit B, <laughs> it's a picture. What's different? I don't have my bike. And he's good,
1: like just,
0: <laughs> and he keeps them there all night. He's just being a total douche. And, and the, oh. that, that was one aspect I'd never picked up on. On the other twenty times I'd seen that movie, the neighborhood watch from hell. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and everybody's just tired and wanting to go home. He's like, exhibit Q!
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, just just interject quickly on this podcast, folks. If you haven't seen Pee-Wee's Big Adventure, you simply must see this movie. Oh, yeah. If you've never taken acid, which most of you won't have, <laughs> don't do that. Just watch this movie. Because if you watch this movie, you will know what taking acid feels like because it's insane from start to finish but it's also amazing you go on a trip that's for sure literally and figuratively
0: <laughs> anything else on this track here kevin before we wrap it up
1: i think just maybe we move to f- sort of 418 420 something in there because now we start to wind down into second home by the sea which is again to me i think that breaking these two songs up was more about making it more palatable for the label and for the the new fans who maybe got hooked on you know some of the shorter hits because this is one song it really is and it's an 11 minute song but an 11 minute song about an a uh, you know burglar getting possessed by ghosts that's kind of how to sell so you know sonically they're very
0: different and they were conceived
1: very differently but thematically
0: they're it's the next page you're you're exactly right and Uh, one thing I want to do after we're done recording at somebody is just listen to second home by the sea by itself. Because I've always listened to it home by the sea and then second home by the sea. Just listen to the second part and see how it works on its own. As if it were say the B side of a fucking single, like that's all.
1: So, you know, as a listener, never maybe you've never heard Genesis before and you bought this album because you liked um, Abacab. You know, and you thought, well, oh, I'll pick the new Genesis album. I mean, Mama's like, oh, that's great. I've heard that on the radio. And you get to this song. At this point, you're probably thinking, well, now they're just fading out and that's the end of this song. But it leads in to Second Door by the Sea. But before we get into Second Dawn by the Sea, Corey... What we have to do is we have to talk about how we scored this song. Home by the sea. For
0: you, what are you giving it? Uh musically, I give it a nine point five. I couldn't really find a ton of fault uh in it at all. Uh lyrically, a nine point five, which is rare for me for a Tony Penned uh lyric. <laughs> I love the story it tells. I, I think he just paints quite the fucking picture. And musically, four point five. Minor nitpicks. Uh, If anything, I really love the fuck out of this song. So I gave it nine and a half, nine and a half, and four
1: and a half. How about you, Kev? 10, 10, and five, my friend. Oh, there you go. (laughs) Again, and I struggle with giving these songs 10, 10, and five, but this is one of the songs that, if I'm going to introduce people to Genesis, I'm going to give them this song, because I think if you don't like this, you're not going to like Genesis. Mm -hmm. Because everything that's good about Genesis is in this song. You've got... A fucking killer lyric and a great story. You've got a sonic quality to it. You've got this weird abrasive guitar at the start. Everything about this is just great. Um, one thing I noticed that I probably wouldn't have done before: there's this idea of someone being forced to listen to ghost stories or people's life stories from ghosts over and over again. And there's a 1973 horror movie called The Vault of Horror, which has a similar premise. And I only learned about this from listening to another podcast, Corey. And I want to shout out someone who is in the Deep Dive Podcast Network, but this podcast isn't. So it's the um, Weirdies podcast that Paul Moody does from In the Lap of the Pods, which is another Queen podcast. And what he does is he breaks down and talks about, uh, you know, usually it's an old horror movie like Hammer Horror or, you know, the 70s, 80s. Um, And it's one of those movies that's like an anthology kind of thing where you get these five people in this room and they realize that they have something in common and then the twist at the end of the story and we get a twist at the end of this, the second half of the song, I think, um, you go, oh yeah, that would be fucking horrible. And so this song, after I've seen that movie and started so listening to the song, it's like, ah, there's kind of a line there too. So I have you ever seen Vaults of Horror?
0: I never have, no.
1: I'm going to send you a link because I think you, as a movie buff yourself, i think you'd enjoy it sounds really cool and there's yeah. some big that names in it some big big english names in it yeah that's awesome
0: uh in the song here you always kind of get a hopeful feel like even after that awful lyric just yeah. musically it, it kind of picks you up a little bit like the, the keyboards are playing a little lighter right it, it's not quite a, as creepy but uh i want to we're at 445 i want to play it now through to the beginning of second home because there when that the, when that transition happens it, it's pretty jarring and it really really works
2: Редактор
1: Okay, as a drummer, you got to be loving that. Oh, of course. I mean, the cool thing about this is that that's just a drum loop, right? So they filled, and this is what we were talking about earlier, where Phil had sort of recorded this on his downtime and left it in the studio, and Mike and Tony come in, and they jammed over that drum loop for 30 minutes. Yep. And took the best parts of what they thought were the best parts and sort of assembled them, and, and there are one or two points in this you know, second home by the sea where you think, ah, Yes, that's the stitch point. I can hear there where they've, you know, they've melded or glommed two pieces together. But holy crap, yeah. It's a great drum loop.
0: It really is. That that, that pattern kind of carries you all the way through the song here, and it's fantastic. And I just love that they just jammed on this thing until he ran out of tape. Popped in another yeah. tape and kept going, right? And then how they how you stitch that together and make it, like, cohesive. Like you said, if you really listen to it, you can find the stitch points. It's like if you watch a movie like uh, 1917, which was all presented in one shot. Right. If you really watch and you're, you have an editor's eye, you can see, okay, there's a stitch point. There's a stitch point. There's probably a dozen or so uh, in that movie, in a one-shot movie. And you with music, I think, especially would be able to pick those out a lot easier than I could. But I thought it was pretty seamless how they did
1: it. It's also super cool that... Again, we talked earlier in the episode, I think maybe right off the top, about the Lin drums. So, uh, the Simmons drums. So, these are the actual, it's not a, the Lin drum is a machine, right? That's the drum machine where you can program and, you know, get certain sounds out. But the Simmons were the first electronic drums that you could actually play. And so, Phil said that when you hit a Simmons drum back in the day, it was like hitting a four mica countertop. So there's no give, it doesn't feel like a drum and it's really, really, you know, it'd be quite jarring, you don't know what you're going to do. And mm-hmm. so they felt awful to play, but it also changes the way you play it to the extent that you get a different type of rhythm from it. So, doom, 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 So you get this weird sort of mechanical, I don't know, you know, industrial metal takes this to the nth degree later on. But this is the birth of it where... If you don't have a, a, a stick hitting a skin, you can do a different thing with it. And this is a great example of it. So unexpected maybe when you come out of Home by the Sea, which has got a groove to it and a very lyrical and a story-based thing. Now we get into, well, where is this going now?
0: So you can almost look at, at Second Home <laughs> by the Sea as like the ghosts reliving their lives and telling their stories. Yeah. So this would be a, a much more exotic, I think, uh, part of this ghost's particular story where maybe he went on holiday or something because it, <laughs> it, it kind of takes a left turn on you. And there's yeah. a few different left turns in this one, but I thought uh, if you have different ghosts telling different stories, uh, you know, that's what these shifts are to me in a
1: way. I cannot tell you how much I love that because I had not connected those dots And I'll be honest with you, I don't think Genesis had either. (laughs) But I think that because you've got so many different improvisational ideas in this sort of 30-minute jam that they did, when you take out the best parts of it, it does kind of have that... There's a separation of ideas in this that gives you those personalities of each of these different spirits. Corey, Morissette, you are a fucking genius.
0: I don't know about that. I, I was just looking at it more like a filmmaker because i i i come from the world of film yeah and like if i was making a film you know i would put in these tonal shifts to tell different different perspectives of stories yeah. and and that's kind of what i got here and there's another big one coming up uh, actually at 213 where you get even a, a, another story kind of told to you
1: Yeah, man. The more now you have said that, I don't know if I'll ever listen to this second half of this song the same again.
0: Yeah, you, you have that drum pattern as the bedrock, and and then the these yeah. different spirits are telling you different stories. I it almost reminded me of the movie Split, M Night Shyamalan Split with James McAvoy. He plays a guy with split personalities, and there's okay. he has dozens of different personalities living inside of that are fighting for the light to kind of have their moment in the light, which is how he explains how they take over this guy's body. And they, they, you know, encompasses his body for a while. and It's almost like these ghosts are kind of taking their turns, trying to get in there and, and, and tell their story. And you're getting, that's where you're getting these tonal shifts.
1: So the drumbeat is the home by the sea. Exactly. And yep. everything else is the spirits and the stories. Yep. Oh man, my mind is blown. <laughs> I think you just had too many beers maybe. Well, there's also that. but if we we skip forward to well let's get back to musically because that's my forte um to about 238 there's a they go into the next section where mike really opens up the guitar but there's a listen for the fret noise because you can get the fret noise on the guitar and it's again when people leave those things in they just sound so cool i had the exact same time awesome Do you think that sounds like super 80s, that guitar tone? In a way, in a way, yeah. And I'm not not saying that as a negative because they were doing this in 83 before it was ubiquitous and before it became an 80s guitar tone, but it's that thing where you look back and think, oh, yeah, that sounds kind of... We were talking about this, again, a few weeks ago on your Aerosmith podcast about when you're the progenitor of a certain sound, sometimes you get lumped into something that's kind of lame, Corey. But you did it first, so it's not lame. You just fucking came up with a great idea. So, yeah,
0: yeah, it may have accidentally inspired some, uh, some, some '80s rockers to kind of take a, a similar tone. Because you think '83, uh what was the big album in '83? It was probably Quiet Riot, right? It, which is nothing like this. But you know, <laughs> uh the, the, I, I can see. And again, I, I go back to being, a, you know, from a filmmaker's perspective. Okay, this ghost has a much harrowing, much more harrowing tale to tell, coming yeah. off the light and wispy from the last one. This dude's seen some shit, and he's laying it down in this section here. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And if you can sum up, like, 15 years of Genesis in, I don't know, a minute, that might be as close as you could ever get to it. Because they come back to that and they refer back to things they've done earlier in that one minute or 45 seconds, whatever it was. I mean, everything's there. There's such a cool little production piece where they fade the guitar in, which you don't always find in a studio production, right? And then you get the bass that comes in in this section, which just blows everyone away. And it starts to push the synth out of the way and then boss things on guitar before you give it back to Tony after, you know, not very long. So there's that interplay between the guitar leading and the synth leading. And you've got all these little refrains where I can hear um, sort of riffs or little motifs that they use on We Can't Dance. I can hear things that they did on Trick of the Tail. I can hear little bits and pieces that they threw into everything. And I think that's that thing that comes from when you're just jamming, that's Genesis and Tony Banks and Mark Rutherford and Phil Collins at their most natural. And of course that's going to come out. And so of course you're going to play and lean back into things you've done before. And of course you're going to sort of presage things that you're going to do in the future. So this song, this little bit of this song has, it just kind of, Man, it's like a foundation that you can build an entire Genesis catalog on top of.
0: I love that because, yeah, I could see you know Mike in a session in you know 92 saying, oh, I did this little bit on Second Home by the Sea. Let's see if we can build on that. And then that was really cool. You brought that up musically. Thematically, we're almost coming to the climax of the story here and yeah. that everything is getting very it feels very much like an emotional climax. We're not quite in the third act of the song yet, but uh, we definitely have that rising action leading up to, to the big kind of event where, you know, you are getting individual stories. Now it seems like all the ghosts are coming at you at once yep. and just throwing a bunch of shit at you and, and driving you a little crazy. So. So our character now is almost kind of resigned to his fate, where he's just kind of like, okay, summer nights, longer nights of gloom, just waiting for the morning light. You know, I'm in hell. Uh, the, these ghosts are tormenting me. But instead of that, um, you know, that, that kind of frantic, you know, get me yeah. out of here in the first song, this is just kind of like,
1: I'm fucking stuck, and he's just given up on life here. Yeah. It's that, again, to, I love that you've picked up on this, because that's it's the third, it, definitely the third act, and it's the twist. Right, so you've, to now, and in Home by the Sea, we've had this antagonist. He's the protagonist. I don't know who the antagonist or the protagonist is. He's the antagonist, and he's kind of fighting the spirits who are trying to fix him in this location. Now, he has become one of them. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of the, it's, it's, you know, in, um, but what I love about the twist is, you know the movie Fallen with Denzel Washington? Yep. Okay. I love that bit at the end where he says, oh, you forgot something, didn't you? I said, I was going to tell you about the time I almost died. And it's that little clever twist of perspective where this last line, this last lyric and last vocal is from the perspective of the burglar, but now he is one of the spirits that inhabits the home by the sea. And so you, you kind of get that sense that now he's one of the people who's just waiting for the next one to come into this building and get taken into... The collective, yeah.
0: So th- this is actually kind of the climax of the story, where where, where that that kind of shift happens, and then we have the, the the following action leading into the conclusion. But I thought it was just uh, storytelling wise, it's a perfect little three act structure. Which is a very scary story. Isn't that how Phil used to introduce it?
1: Now we're going to tell you a very scary yeah. story. <laughs> yeah. But again, I mean, when you leave that line at the end, as we relive our lives and what we tell you, it's kind of got, so I know you're a reader, Corey. You've read Stephen King's The Dark Tower, I'm sure, right? Okay. We've talked, I think we've talked about this even. It's that circular thing. I think that as we relive our lives and what we tell you, it takes you back to the beginning, and now you're thrown back to we're just waiting for the next. Victim, where the Dark Tower is like, car, repeat, car is a, a circle, car is a wheel, and it will repeat itself, and it's that same idea that we're all sort of, we're treading the same monotonous, relentless path, and everything that goes around will come around, and we can't escape the cycle. And I just quite like that, that, that hopeless theme in this song, even though I'm, I'm quite a pragmatist, and I'm quite, you know, I'm not a pessimist, quite an optimist, but <laughs> I, I like it in this song. And to close out the, this side of the album, dear God, I mean what a what a sweet this is, Corey. It, it is something. Uh, this is one of the best uh, sides of an
0: album. Uh, it' one of my personal favorites of all time. Uh, for second Home" and "By the Sea," I gave it a nine for music, um, and I can't even really tell you why I docked it apart. Just a, maybe a couple of sections I didn't find as effective as "Home okay. by the Sea," which I gave a nine and a half. So I gave it a solid nine, nine and a half for lyrics, because again. It's the same lyrics from Home by the Sea, but just that little, the way he performs that refrain. Yeah. uh, And especially that last line, as we live our lives and what we tell you, is no perfect. And four and a half for production. So nine, nine and a half, four and a half. What a side. Like, fuck. Everything was nines and and fives here, man. Like, it was just, it's almost perfect.
1: Yeah, I mean, I went, for this one, I went 10, 10, and four. The only thing I'm knocking off on this one is I think there are a few times on... Second door by the sea, where it's a bit muddy because that's where you, it' there's a bit too much going on almost. Yeah, and again, it's a quibble; it's not a major complaint. But the whole rest of this side of the album has been so clean and so well produced that it stands out. That there's a few I don't know, like twenty second sections of this last song. Do you think well, I wouldn't necessarily have that brought up so much or dropped down so much? But dear God, I mean, like I said, it's Home by the Sea and Second Home by the Sea are one thing to me. It's an 11-minute song, and if I was doing the whole thing as one, it'd be ten, ten, and 5, because mm-hmm. I don't want to change it. Yeah, very little notes. So what was your
0: official score again? Ten, ten, and 4?
1: Uh ten, ten, and 4, yeah. yeah.
0: All right, so for side A of uh, Genesis, or Shapes,
1: I guess they, they used to
0: call it, Nah. Um, I, for me, it's a nine and a half, nine and a half, four and a half. <laughs> Love Side A of this record. Kevin, what was your averages for Side A?
1: Let's talk very quickly about the cover art, because you just brought it up that was called Shapes. Mm-hmm. And so the cover art was designed by Bill Smith, who's an English graphic artist, um, who also did Abacab, by the way, which you wouldn't think, really, when you look at him, right? But it was a photograph um, that he took of, you know, those, like, shape things that your kids have when they're young, right? a triangle, yep. a square, a half crescent, and they were just all laying on the carpet after he put his son to bed. So he took a photo of it, and then he thought, oh, fuck, hang on a minute. That's a great album cover. I just need to arrange them a little bit more aesthetically and a bit more sort of, you know, filter them really and process the photo of it. But it gives it such a striking album cover. Um, but my scores overall for side A of Genesis are Music 9, Lyrics 9.5, production 4.5, for a grand total of 23. I think, Corey, it might be, and I don't know because we haven't done Invisible Touch and We Can't Dance yet, I think it might be the best single side of a Genesis record that we have, I think.
0: It is going to be hard to top. uh, I think so. That's for sure, because I think you were what? What did you say you were, 23? 23 for me. I'm like 23 and a half. Oh, nice. So.
1: Now, we forgot, or I forgot, last week to play my little game with you. And so I'm going to give you my little side game. And I called it, and then there were three. So I'm going to give you the names of three artists or bands, including Genesis. You just have to put them in order of monthly listeners on Spotify, Corey. Okay. So you've got Genesis, of course, Mm -hmm. the Kinks, and the Who. So I'm giving you three... Sort of classic British rock bands. Put them one, two, three, Genesis, the Kinks, and the Who. Month of listeners Man. on Spotify.
0: I would imagine they're fairly close. Uh, I'm gonna go the Who number one.
1: Okay. Genesis number two and Kinks number three. Fuck. I gotta fucking spin you <laughs> somewhere because you nailed it again. Like it's yeah, so <laughs> the Who now this might surprise you though. Who, 9 million and change, only mm-hmm. 9 million monthly listeners. Genesis, seven and a half, and they're up about um, 50,000. And I would attribute that mainly to our podcast.
0: Of course, yes.
1: And then the Kinks, 6.9 million. The Kinks, who Should are a one of the greatest bands of all time. People need to get their fucking shit sorted out <laughs> and start listening to the Kinks.
0: But anyway, but there's yeah, so much kinks. Again. Is is that the problem? Well, like, yeah. That catalog is maybe massive. <laughs> maybe.
1: Well, when we do the kinks, Corey, you know, and it won't be next season because I definitely, I know I'm going to lose. I just, I don't know. Why. <laughs> I've just got this kind of ominous sense that I'm going to this sense of. Did you pick to lose? Did you pick Winded Withering? <laughs> I did not. <laughs> but we're going to do the kinks at some point. But we're going to do the kinks up to 1970 because. Yeah, you can't do the entire Kinks album. We can't do the entire Bob Dylan catalogue. We can't do the entire Paul McCartney we catalogue. We're going to have to pick some battles. But the Kinks up to 70,
0: we're doing it. I tell you, that's some good stuff there. All day and all the night. You really got me now.
1: Lola, mm-hmm. good shit. Okay. Well, that's side A of Genesis. The uh, eponymous. Ninth. Ninth album? No, is it? What kind album is this? Longer than that. Uh, twelfth. Twelfth album. Jesus Christ. The eponymous, tw- who leaves the eponymous album to the 12th? I mean, come on, <laughs> really? Um, Def Leppard did
0: the same thing. Uh, their second to last record they, was self-titled, so. That's Def Leppard
1: though, I mean. Collective Soul has two self-titled albums. Peter Gabriel <laughs> had four. Really? Stick that in your pipe and smoke it. Yeah, his, <laughs> first, his first four albums were all called Peter Gabriel. It's like, oh, come on, Pete, really? <laughs> all right, um, we get it, but really? we We got to sell albums, dude, come on. Yeah. <laughs> look if you want to come check us out on facebook uh and twitter you can do it on facebook at ultimate catalog clash and on twitter at you catalog clash you can find me on my other podcasts at tom petty project on facebook instagram and youtube and seaside pod review on facebook and queen seaside on twitter Corey, where can the fine people find all the things that you do and there are oh me. my goodness
0: yes uh, and the podcast will rock a van halen show you can find us at uh uh podcastwillrock.com, and PodcastWillRock on all your social media. Uh, I do a show called Backtracks Aerosmith Revisited with Scott Haskin, uh, sometimes featuring Kevin Brown. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at BT Aerosmith, and I do a show called Backtracks Theme Music with John Mariano talking our favorite music from movies at uh, BT Theme Music on Twitter.
1: And uh, gosh, I think that's all of Do I have any more, Kev? I think that's it. Well, you haven't talked about your um. Uh, Mariah Carey podcast, though that's a deep dive podcast that you got coming soon, right?
0: Oh, In absolutely!
1: Uh, yeah, entire catalog. I get so podmotional. Is uh, is coming soon <laughs> My Mariah Carey? Okay, uh. <laughs> first of all, I threw that at you out of the blue, S- folks. We didn't script this. Second of all, how the fuck did you come up for, with a Mariah Carey podcast name? Immediately. That's that's quite worrying, Corey, actually.
0: It was the only Mariah Carey song I could think of right off the top of my head like that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, there you go, folks. I get so pod emotional, it's coming your way in 2027.
0: Yeah, 2027. Thank you. Yeah, give me some time to figure it out.
1: (laughs) Okay, well, check us out next week because we're gonna be talking about side two of this fantastic Genesis record called Genesis.